Hello, I'm PJ Matthews from the School of English Drama and Film at University College Dublin. Welcome to this UCD ScholarCast. The following lecture in the series The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance will be given by playwright Frank McGuinness. Professor McGuinness is Writer-in-Residence at the School of English, Drama and Film, University College Dublin. Filming Freel Many years ago, the magazine of The New Statesman, in one of its weekly literary competitions, asked for the most unlikely combinations to rival a recent publication which was entitled Jane Austen and the French Revolution. The winning entrant imagined a possible tome entitled Iris Murdoch and the Musical Tradition, envisaging the young Iris at Oxford taking time off her philosophic inquiries to revel in a knees-up with the likes of Cheeky Chappy Maximilla and a sing-along with a cockney ghost of Mary Lloyd. I mention this because in certain respects, this strange association of the novelist and the entertainment is as likely as Brian Friel and Fulham. It might be instructive to remember now the name, the nickname Friel has been saddled with by many in his army of admirers. That tag is, of course, Master, the Master, a title he shares with Noel Coward, and that's about all he does share with him. It is a homage to Friel's preeminence in his field. He is now looked up to by at least two, if not three, generations of northern and southern Irish writers. His fierce political independence his staunch artistic integrity, his determination to announce to the world of theatre that the author, not the actor, not the designer, emphatically, deliberately, not the director. No, it is the author who is the only begetter of theatrical originality. These qualities of independence, integrity, an authorial isolation are held to be examples of what the artist, the true artist, can aspire to. And how different, how very different, to the life of the average scriptwriter. In the world of film, money rules the roost. The passion is profit. The producer's word is law. The sheer cost of even the most simple movie is astronomical compared to all but the most lavish theatrical production. And if the play is the thing, as Shakespeare insists, then the picture is a thousand things. The responsibility of a thousand voices and visions, all taking shape under the ages of a directorial command, created technically by a camera, created mechanically 
by a camera, not by the creativity of a writer's intelligent imagination. It is fair to say that throughout his long career, Friel has, by and large, chosen to reject this form of commerce. In the 60s, a film of Philadelphia, Here I Come, did appear. I believe there are also surviving screenings of stage productions on RTE, The Love of Cass Maguire, Crystal and Fox. A BBC documentary, voiced by Seamus Dean in the 1980s, interrupted Dean's lecture with some excerpts from the plays. There was also on RTE in the 1970s a splendid adaptation of Friel's story, Mr. Singh, My Heart's Delight. And then, in the 90s, comes the subject of this talk, the film of Dancing at Lunasa, for which I did the adopted screenplay. These must all, in their own way, be counted as part of the Friel canon. Perhaps not a large part, perhaps not a significant part, but they do stand as reminders that Fulham and Friel are not entirely incompatible. In January of 2009, Friel will be 80 years old. His position as the grand old man of Irish culture is deserved, and it is assured, even if he might quarrel with the application of the grand old man, the old being the quarrelsome term. The awards, the honours bestowed on him have been modestly and kindly accepted by this great writer. And yet so deeply ingrained is the image of Friel the Sage, the sea or wise shaman, as Esdana calls you when you stumble into advanced artistic life. So deeply ingrained is this image that it is sometimes hard perhaps even impossible to remember and to assert how radical a writer the young Friel was through the 60s and into the 70s, up to forming the Committee of Field Day in 1980. That committee consisted of Seamus Dean, Seamus Heaney, Tom Paulin, David Hammond, Stephen Ray, and they were joined later by the other great Irish playwright, Thomas Kilroy. That, of course, led to the political recognition of translations and its international reputation. The role of Friel as primarily an investigator of the word, of verbal systems and failures, enchantingly realised in the clever misapprehensions of Moira and Yellen's love scene, this linguistic role was the most strongly stressed. Friel's experiments seem to be confined to the linguistic. And yet this does not do justice to the liberties taken in the writing from Philadelphia Here I Come onward. The splitting of the atom in the duality of Gar public and private in Philadelphia Here I Come. The serious scrutiny of straight and gay sexualities in the gentle island the defiant, complex structural games of living quarters and volunteers. 
the intense rage burning behind both the Mondi scheme and freedom of the city. The blazing contempt that sides passionately, irreverently with the young opposing the old. All these mark the disquiet and in some cases the disgust of the maturing freel. For if there is one heading that one could crudely label over the theatre of Brian Freel as a young man, then it is a violent one. It is a violence of mind, a violence of manners, a violence against accepted norms of social behaviour, a violence against conventions, and a passionate desire to disturb the status quo that, of course, parallels the internal upheavals of form and content typical of the revolutions in style that disfigured so strikingly the musical and cinematic legacy of Britain, Europe and America in the 1960s and 1970s. Stephen Ray has said that in the composition of Field Day's Board, one great an indeed liberating distinction between the younger Ray and the master Freel was the latter's deafness to the reality of rock music. Yes, it is inconceivable Freel writing a play such as Stoppard's recent rock and roll. But Freel was open to the wider revolutions in acting and writing, even dare one say it, the revolutions in directing that deeply influenced all aspects of performance in all media of that revolutionary decade over 40 years ago, when Friel's sensibility and modern sensibility took shape. It is not the purpose of this talk to pinpoint too accurately specific cinematic references in Friel's theatre. I will talk of a few. There is unquestionably a deep correspondence between the conflicting narratives of Faith Healer and Kurosawa's Japanese masterpiece, Rashomon. There are debts to popular culture in the Gentle Islands play within the play, the doctor's story neatly, ironically paraphrasing the nun's story. The deep influence of Tennessee Williams especially Arthur Miller, William Inge and Thornton Wilder on the 1960s generation of Freel, Murphy, Leonard and Kilroy has never really been explained in detail, to my knowledge, other than to observe the frequent use of narrators in Freel and this is a direct borrowing from Williams and to a lesser extent Miller and Wilder. I do not have time here to do remote justice to the invaluable points of contact between these American playwrights, whose work was so brilliantly realised in so many films, and their Irish counterparts. I mention these in passing as an excuse for my desire to adopt and the liberties that I took when I threw caution to the wind and said, yes, I will, yes attempt to turn Dancing at Lunasa into a film. One of the consequences of throwing caution to the wind 
is that sometimes, most times, the wind will throw the caution back at you. It takes a particular recklessness to catch it, look at it, and then throw it away again. But what is art if it is not reckless? All adaptations depend on, well, I might be polite and call it daring. But let us be blunt and call it what it really is. All adaptations depend on sheer bloody neck. Nobody in their right mind would tackle the anarchic madness of Ibsen's Pierre Gint. It takes a necessary form of lunacy to brave the sheer face of that impossible Sierra, the barbaric comedies of Valley and Clan. The shifts and twists, the riotously queer, straight sexuality of Miss Julie, who, with a titter of wit, would steep themselves in its panic and passion. Well, I have taken them all on, but I don't clap myself on the back for that, because all those challenges fade in comparison to the threat presented by putting Dancing at Lunasa on Fulham. Dancing at Lunasa, the single most successful Irish play of the late 20th century. What possessed me to do it? Well, for a start, it might be useful to look at Friel's own lengthy exploration of the process of adapting one medium to another. And let's tap fate. Let's call this an act of translation. In the play translations, Friel, in effect, seems to see one language as a strange shadow of another, each of them cast by different suns, yet still belonging to the same cosmos, sharing unpredictable points of contact, observing, at times, opposite laws of order and perception. This can, of course, result in misleading impressions. In the importance of being earnest, that genius of contradiction, Miss Gwendolyn Fairfax, a woman truly after her creator Wilde's mind, asserts that her first impressions of people are never wrong, merrily ignoring all evidence to the contrary. The first impression of the play Dancing at Lusa, dedicated as it is to the memory of those five brave Glenties women, might lead one to expect it is the females who create it, who are the sole decisive creators. But on closer evidence, this is not really the case. The narrator, Michael, both as boy and as man, brings the play into lyrical being with a subtle, beautiful articulation of the rhythms of his memories from the 1930s. He puts the play to rest with his elegy, full of lost hope, abandoning the family to the darkness of this play and all plays end. The god in the title, Lou, he is masculine, and it is the males, Jack and Jerry, they arrive as catalysts from the big world of outside Ballybeg. They bring to the small town change 
and shape to the drama. When Agnes and Rose dare do a runner, their future life is condensed into a single sorrowful story of their victimhood on the streets of England, scraping an existence, dying as miserably as any fallen woman in Victorian melodrama. The play Dancing at Lunasa is male, and the challenge of translating it into film lay in making it as best as I could, making it a woman's movie. Did I do that? The first major decision was to reduce as much as possible the narrator's role. This must mean a losing of the play's most obvious poetry. The artistic eye and ears of the mature Michael provides that poetry. But instead of his masterful monologue, there must be another focus, another guide. And inevitably, that focus, that guide, would be the camera itself. And for the workings of that camera, I chose as metaphor an image from Friedel's text itself. I chose to heighten its importance. And the detail that I chose is a cracked mirror. A cracked mirror where two of the sisters, beautiful Chrissy, funny Maggie, can see themselves. The fragments of light would pick out and pick up from details the theatrical text in its new transformed life on camera. In that broken reflection, they would perceive what they look like and how we would know them from the first. Friel has been called the last romantic. As a homage to that appellation, I envisage the woman as freeing the spell of that quintessential romantic heroine, the Lady of Charlotte, daring to let the glass break and still surviving, braving the curse, wearing out the bad luck by working, working, working. That was the emphasis I placed on their lives throughout the film. The energy, the necessity, the demands of work in the meaning of these women's lives. Images of the woman at work abound, working in the house, working on the land, cleaning, cooking, making a life for all out of next to nothing. This stands in contrast to the males. Father Jack is ill from his sojourn in Africa. He returns to Ballybeg exhausted. Jerry is a charming, shiftless character, moving from job to job, travelling salesman, dancing master, Spanish Civil War recruit, jack of all trades, master of none, expert at abandoning women throughout Ireland and in his native Wales. Michael is a boy, not yet earning. It is therefore the woman who must work. That insistent economic necessity, that struggle for financial survival, that links all scenes and sections of the movie. And it allowed me to take the one great decision 
that separates the film from the play. And that is where the action's climactic, physically climactic moment or event would occur. And this is, of course, the dance itself. In the play, the dance occurs in Act One. In the film, it happens very near the end. Theatre has one unimaginable luxury over film. In a play, time is not money. The text on stage may last for as long as it requires, with no extra cost to the production. Every minute on screen, by comparison, costs a fortune. The universal maxim advice to all screenwriters, keep it short, let the visuals do the talking, that piece of wisdom owes as much, owes everything to financial pressure rather than aesthetic inclination. The whole play of Dancing at Lunasa lasts for over two and a half hours. The first act runs at well over 60 minutes. The dance, therefore, takes place approximately an hour into stage business, with more than another hour and an interval to go. For all its intense energy and ritual ferocity, there is about the theatrical choreography a sense that this frantic movement is again part of the puppet master's expansive design, in harmony with the expansive vocabulary and syntax of the narrator's beautifully written, subtly self-admiring self-portrait, a quality inherent to all dramatic monologues. Reduce those monologues, remove them, and a different urgency must possess the plot. The film's narrative must lead, ultimately, to the explosion of the dance. The dance is the last revelation of the woman, the ultimate illumination of their relationship with and opposed to each other. In the play, the women are ultimately defined by their failed contacts with men. Chris and Agnes, obviously with Jerry, Rose with Danny Bradley, Maggie with Brian McGuinness, Kate with Austin. They are just as powerfully dependent on their bonds with Michael, as son, and Jack as priest and brother. Placing the dance in Act One as the play does, abandoning it at the midpoint of the action, this reinforces the continued lack of the sisters' self-determination. The film places it as their conclusion, and it gives them a flash of freedom to combine exclusively together as women. They separate them as individuals, but always they sustain the excitement of their body's rhythms, and deliberately, very deliberately, this dance excludes the men from the secret of their lives. Michael and Jack are left to watch them by the door. Jerry is helpless up the tree. 
This is the woman's wire dance, and the victory is an assertion of strength that needs no formality of male address, no monologue to dignify it. It thrives through the cracked grace of the camera, capable of many foci, refusing to centre on a single, unifying male voice. Control is collective instead. The passion I wish to explore in the film, that passion is sisterly, not masterly. I do not think it exaggeration to state that with this play, Freel restored dance to the heart of Irish culture. You have North Pearson's Abbey production, directed by Patrick Mason, took Broadway by storm, winning four Tonys. Then even more significantly, it is to dancing at Lunasa that we can look for the origins of river dance, that phenomenal financial and artistic success of the Celtic Tiger. And it was probably due to that tiger the film found the necessary finance to exist and to open out the action. This required populating the film with figures merely mentioned in the play's text. Vera McLaughlin, Sophia, her daughter, Austin, the shopkeeper, Danny Bradley. They do make fleeting appearances to embody the society of Ballybeg as it affects the Mundi family. But in creating a cast for the film, the strength of Friel's psychology shone through. The movie retained all the play's major characters, with the exchange of the adult Michael for child Michael. I say this just in case there is doubt, so I will assert that he does know what he's doing. And if I didn't, I feel I would hear about it. It is a mark of the respect he has held in the international community that the film attracted Meryl Streep, Hollywood's most distinguished actress, to play Kate. What would she like to work with? Wonderful. But I must resort here to Faith Healer, Friel's other great play, and simply say, that's another story. You have been listening to playwright Frank McGuinness in a University College Dublin Scholar cast in the series The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance. A transcript of this lecture can be found at www.ucd.ie forward slash scholarcast. <laughs>